0: Our Bible reading this morning and the sermon passage is taken from Mark chapter 8, commencing reading from verse 10 to chapter 9, verse 1. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Mark chapter 8. If you haven't got your Bible, please follow me with the reading. Mark chapter 8, verse 10. And immediately Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and went to the distrator of Dhammanutra. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Verse 40. Now they have gotten to, forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they have no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces Do you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the twelve of the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And they sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said to them plainly, and he said this plainly. And Jesus took him, and Peter took him aside, and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If any man would come after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever saves his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and Profit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of God.
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who speaks and reveals to us your great eternal truths. We thank you that in the Gospel of Mark, we've been able to see uh, and come to know your Son, uh, the Lord, uh, the Christ, and over these last uh, six, seven weeks, we have the privilege of being able to see just what an awesome king that he is and what he came to do. And we pray that you continue to help us um, by your spirit uh, to open our eyes to Jesus, uh, that we may know him, uh, the fullness of, his, uh, of who he is and what he came to do, and to really be able to trust him uh, with all of our lives. We pray knowing that uh, it's only by your work, by the power of your spirit, by an act of miracle, really, that we're able to see spiritual things. So we pray this morning that you will work powerfully and miraculously in our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Jesus Christ, right? Many people in our world, uh, they acknowledge Jesus, don't they? I did a quick search on the most influential people of world history, and guess who is at the top of almost every list? Right, it's Jesus. Right, two thousand years ago, this man called Jesus is mostly regarded as the most influential person to ever live in this world. But the question is, what do people acknowledge or believe about Jesus? there's a mix of all things. Right, people think about Jesus, uh, but not necessarily in the way that the Bible teaches. Even within the church, many people would believe in Jesus. Right, you go to any church, and people believe in Jesus. But what kind of Jesus do Christians believe in? Now, just take one example, right? We've been talking a lot about Jesus being king. And what does it mean for Jesus to be king? Now, for some people, it means that Jesus deserves our absolute and total obedience. And so people talk about, you know, Jesus' lordship and obedience and commandments and instructions as being the key thing to understanding Jesus. But then other people, when they think of Jesus as king, they think that means victory, right? No problems in life. Everything can be overcome because Jesus is our king. And others think that, well, Jesus is our king and we're his brothers, then we're kind of princes and, and we're sisters and we're princesses, right? And, and we should have the ability to have his power to be able to heal the sick and, and do miracles and even raise the dead, right? Even just a simple statement like Jesus is king, Christians can have such different views, so the question is, does it matter, right? Does it really matter? Um, is, it really, is it enough just to say, well, I believe in Jesus? You believe in Jesus, you know, that's just hold hands, sing Kumbaya, or whatever the Christian version is, all right? Uh, one voice, maybe, right? And we're all united because we all simply say with sincerity in our hearts that we believe in Jesus. Is it okay that the, the Jesus that we believe in is quite different uh, from each other? Now, we're get to the central section of the Gospel of Mark. It's a turning point. I'll give you a bit of context, all right? So for those of you who like this kind of thing, uh, here it is, right? Uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark in kind of like 30 words. We've been up to chap- we're have up to chapter 8 now, and we've seen so far that the location that Jesus has been ministering to is in Galilee, right, which is mainly a Jewish area, and the focus in this section has been about Jesus' identity, right? Week after week, chapter after chapter, we've seen that he is the Son of God, the Christ, He's been preaching the kingdom, and he's been showing the power of the kingdom by casting out evil spirits as his main job, in a way. But along the way, he's also healed the sick, he's raised the dead, and has given us exodus-like signs of feeding the multitudes and walking on water, showing himself to be the great and mighty Savior that Israel is waiting for. Now, if we're going to skip the middle section for a minute, which we are up to, and look at the end, chapter 11 to 16. If you get to chapter 11, verse 1, you will see that the location is now different. It's in the center of Judah, Jerusalem, the city. And the focus from there on is Jesus' mission, right? Jesus' mission. He goes to Jerusalem to do what he came to do, to die on the cross. Now, in this middle section, chapter 8 to 10, it's really sandwiched, if you look closely at your Bibles, right? This healing miracles on either end. This healing of the blind man, that, that Jesus requires two goals to get right. And then in chapter 10, the healing of Bartimaeus, right? Another blind man. And the location is now on a journey. And five times you'll hear this phrase, on the way. Right? He's moving away from where he's been ministering to in the north, and now coming on the way to Jerusalem to do his mission. Now the importance of this section, flanked by these two blindness miracles, is about seeing. It's about seeing Jesus clearly. Because after chapter 8, we can see that he's the king, but suddenly his mission is about him dying. How does that make sense? Chapter 8 to 10 helps us to see and understand clearly what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, and what does it mean for us to follow the Christ so the three sermons today and the next two sermons is about what it means for Jesus to be the Christ and what does it mean to follow this Christ. Very important to understand and see this clearly. Now for eight chapters now, what we've seen is uh, over and over again who Jesus is. And it's really a flow out from Mark chapter 1 verse 1, right? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And story after story, we've been getting a bigger and bigger picture of Jesus' authority as God's Christ. But there is still a chance that we don't see, is there? There is still a chance that we still don't see Jesus. Because as we pick it up from verse 11, we see that the Pharisees definitely don't see Jesus as he is, right? So there's a chance that many of us here, some of us here, Maybe you don't see Jesus even though we've been here since the beginning of the series. Maybe since we've been here at church since the beginning of our lives, there is still a chance that we are like the Pharisees who don't really see. The Pharisees come to Jesus. What do they do? They demand to see another sign, right? And we're told, why do they want to see? Because they want to find another reason to argue and to test Jesus. Their spiritual blindness is so severe that no desire whatsoever resides in their hearts to really see Jesus. They're just there to argue and to fight. No matter what Jesus has to show, they just won't see. This is a deliberate, deep-seated blindness. And I think, sadly, you and I know people like this, right? Deep-seated blindness. doesn't matter what Jesus shows, they just will never see. They just don't want to see. Now, Jesus sighs deeply. It's very human of Jesus, isn't it, to sigh deeply. Uh, It seems to be this this combination of of sorrow and frustration and anger. Uh, Jesus replies, no sign will be given. But surprisingly, did you notice that Jesus doesn't say, no sign will be given to you, blind Pharisees. He doesn't say that. He says, no sign will be given to this generation, to this generation. The problem of spiritual blindness isn't just the Pharisees' problem. It's a generational problem, isn't it? It's a general, widespread problem. Because as we'll see in the next story, the disciples are really not any better, are they? They're not really any better, are they? No, oh, Jesus leaves the, the, the Pharisees, and, and, and him and his disciples get in the boat again, right? And, and suddenly it's like deja vu all over again. Right? There's this issue of food right? in the boat. They have forgotten to bring food with them. These people always don't have food. Right? It's like my kids always asking for food. Um, and they have no food. And before anything is said or done, Jesus straight away pipes up with a warning. And he tells them, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now leaven is kind of like yeast. Okay? So yeast is what you put into a dough and it spreads through the dough to impact the dough for it to be able to rise. Okay? So the picture of yeast is a small thing there is a large impact. Okay, so what is this leaven of the yeast, uh, the the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? Well, as we've seen over the last few chapters, the 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 the, the influence of the Pharisees and Herod is their unbelief, isn't it? It's their uh, spiritual blindness. It's their unrepentance, as we saw in the story of Herod. Now the question then is, has this blindness spread to the disciples? Right, we've seen the Pharisees, we've seen the Herod, and their spiritual blindness as it spread like yeast to the disciples. Now, that's what's, uh, um, that th- think about what's happening when it comes to this bread. right? So there's this bread issue, there's yeast, and Jesus is talking about the spiritual problem of yeast when it comes to the problem of food. So let's think about this food issue they've got in the boat. Right, for the disciples to be worried about not having enough food, haven't we just seen the disciples uh, see Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish? Everyone remember that? Right, back in chapter 6, I think it was. And then, uh, weren't they there when Jesus was in another place in the wilderness with 4,000 people this time, right, feeding them with seven loaves? So think about the ratio, right? 5,000, five loaves, two fish. 1,000. People to one loaf, and then 4,000 with seven loaves. About what? Uh, one is to 600, and now we got one loaf to 12 people. Do you think there's going to be a problem? All right. From, from a, just a, a purely physical provision perspective, it's definitely no problem. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because Jesus draws attention to the number of leftovers. Right. Look at verse 19. Jesus, speaking to the disciples, said. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? The disciples said, well, 12. Uh, And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And the disciples said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Well, do you guys understand? Who understands? Who doesn't understand? It's like, are you supposed to understand? Now, let me refresh your memory, right, to a couple weeks back. If you hear here a few weeks back, you would have heard uh, Steve explain to us about the feeding of the 5,000, right? It was in the wilderness of Galilee, Jewish region. And then after that, Jesus walks on water. And then he says, I am, while he's doing that to Peter, as he passes him by, showing his back, right? It's all Exodus. Remember that? And then just to make it clear that this is supposed to be Jesus... As the saviour of Israel, like the Exodus, he reminds them that there's 12 baskets full, like an overflowing 12 of loaves left. And then, last week, 4,000. This time in the wilderness as well. This time in the Gentile region. And then after that, he heals a Gentile woman's daughter from an evil spirit. And then he opens the, the ears of a, of a deaf man in the Gentile region. And how many baskets full of bread was left over then? Seven. And if you know your Bible, seven is a very significant number about completeness. Do you understand? In case you don't understand, that's what it means, right? That these signs that the disciples should have understood, because they were so clear as to who Jesus was, is that He's the Savior of the world, He's the King. He is the Christ. They should have got that. But they were blind to see. And they're just worried about their tummies. They couldn't even remember that Jesus could feed thousands to one people to bread. verse to one, what's the big deal? And Jesus sighs as well, isn't he, against the disciples. He sighs, and in verse 17 he says, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not Remember? Can you hear that, that kind of sorrow and frustration and even a tinge of anger in Jesus' voice? They had followed Jesus for so long. They had seen so much. They had still not properly understood who Jesus is. Somehow they just couldn't for some reason. They were spiritually blind, just like the Pharisees. Now, how about us? Right, many of us, we were going to church even when we were in our mother's tummy, right? And many of us have been here since we were born, or many years even. Or maybe even the beginning of this series, as we looked at the last eight chapters of Jesus showing himself to us through his word. And the question is, do you still not understand who Jesus is? Do you have eyes to see but not really see? Have you been listening, but not really hearing? And once again, I remind us about the parable of the four soils, isn't it? Parable of the four soils that we looked at a few weeks ago. Do we see and do we hear? Now, I'm going to skip the next little story for, for now and, and jump to the healing, uh, sorry, to, to verse 27 to 28, right? We'll skip the healing and we'll come back to that in a minute, but let's look, look down to verse 27 to 28, a third group of people who don't see. Uh, verse 27 And Jesus went on t- with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Uh, and others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Now, if you don't really know about who these people are, they're actually really nice things to say about Jesus. Right, John the Baptist was the latest sort of a messenger from God uh, who was doing great things right, around the Jordan River as he preached the kingdom, as he preached for people to get ready for God to come, as he preached repentance, and he was respected. Okay, we heard about that a few chapters ago. Elijah, right, one of the great prophets uh, from the Old Testament who didn't even really seem to die. Right? He was kind of raised up into heaven at the end of his life. And others thought he was a prophet, right, just a messenger from God, right, a highly exalted Uh, position to have but that's all they thought about Jesus isn't it after all that these people have seen and have heard you know all the preaching about the kingdom and all the signs of the kingdom all they can say the best that they can say is that Jesus is an important religious figure and no more right an important religious figure and no more It's like today, there are a lot of people who say nice things, even respectful things about Jesus, isn't there? Uh, People who say that Jesus is an important religious figure, the most influential man in history, as we've just heard before, that he was a prophet, that he was a great teacher, an inspirational person and leader, but they say that he's not the answer. He certainly not the answer for me. He is certainly not someone I have to really care about, let alone follow or worship. The reason people can say things like this about Jesus is because they too are spiritually blind. right? They, they can say really nice things about Jesus, but at the end of the day, they are really no different from the Pharisees, no different from the disciples, in that they are spiritually blind. Blind to Jesus. Whether you're an opponent, whether you're a close follower, or whether you're an onlooker, spiritual blindness gets us all. Spiritual blindness is a sickness that we all suffer from. Now, before we come to the crucial question of verse 29, right, verse 29, who do you say that I am? Right. That's what Jesus says next. It's the crucial passage, uh, question of this passage. It's the crucial question of this gospel. And I want to suggest it's a crucial question of life, all of life. This is the most important question to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, before we get to that question, let's rewind the tape of this story and look at this healing right? that comes just before. Now, as you look at this healing, it clearly isn't just any normal healing, is it? It's a bit different. For, number, for one, Jesus needs two goals right, to get it right to heal this man's blindness. For another, this healing miracle is right in the middle of all this blindness that's going on in the Pharisees, the disciples, and in the people around. Clearly, this miracle isn't just a miracle. It's meant to teach us something. Let me explain. Now, some people brought a man, a blind man to Jesus, and they begged Jesus to touch him. Right? Jesus takes a man, uh, the man away to a more private location, and he spits on the man's eyes and lays his hands on him. If you look back to the previous chapter, it's exactly the same kind of story as when he, when he heals the, the deaf man. Can you see that? Before, the deaf healing is a teaching miracle about opening people's ears. And now here is a blindness miracle about opening people's eyes, right? They're all teaching miracles in this section here. And, and he says to the man, do you see anything? Uh, and the man says, I, I see people, but they're like trees walking, Right? Uh, nowadays when I'm getting older and I look at paper, I just see squiggles, not not letters anymore, right? But it's worse. Now, can you imagine this? if I'm an ophthalmologist, right? Uh, Which is like a higher end optometrist, if you know what an ophthalmologist is. And and, and you came to me asking for me to fix your eyesight because you have really bad eyesight. You can barely see. And I do some kind of surgery, maybe cataract surgery or LASIK or something. And and, um, after the surgery, I asked you how... How's it going, right? And you told me that you, you, you see, but you see people as if they were trees walking. The next thing you'll say is, I'm going to sue you, right? Because <laughs> it's an absolute fail as a healer for me to only be able to restore your sight partially. So the question is, are we finally seeing Jesus failing, right? Maybe this blindness is beyond Jesus. Or maybe he simply made a mistake, he didn't put the right amount of spit, right, into the eye and didn't put the hands, maybe one finger was off, right? You know, like Kung Fu Panda, you know, the, that move that he has to do. Maybe he can do it right. But we know for sure, 1,000% 1, sure, that this is not the case. For up to this point, the way Jesus heals is just like nothing. We're usually just a word, sometimes without even a word. Someone touches his clothes and they're healed. Sometimes Jesus heals from a distance, right? Long distance healing. He just says it and then they heal somewhere else. Not to mention that he can raise the dead with just a word. He can walk on water. He can calm the storm. He can feed 5,000. All without breaking a sweat. Do you think this will be a problem for Jesus? Surely not. So what's going on? Why does it have to take him another time of spitting and laying hands before this man's eyes are finally clear? to see with clarity what's going on. No, no, first thing. There's two things going on. The first is this, right? This is the more important one. The first is this. Spiritual blindness can only be overcome with a miracle. Right? That's the first thing we need to see. Forget the two-stage healing. Just look at the, the fact that he's healed from his spiritual blindness. It tells us that spiritual blindness can only be overcome by a miracle. Whether you're an opponent whether you're a long-term follower or whether you're a bystander, an onlooker, everyone suffers from spiritual blindness and so everyone needs the miracle of spiritual healing for us to be able to see Jesus. We are all blind. Why? Because we blind ourselves. We are sinners who have shut our own eyes That's what scriptures tell us. And so our experience tells us that we purposely close our eyes. We stubbornly shut our eyes to the full reality of God, don't we? Because to acknowledge God in full and to give Him the honor and glory and worship that He deserves means that we can't live for ourselves. And who wants that? And so we shut our eyes to our Creator. The Bible also tells us that we are blind because the evil one has shut our eyes. Uh, pretty um, depressing passage, really, Second Corinthians 4. In their case, the unbelievers, that is, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world has blinded the minds, the eyes of the unbelievers. The evil one has shut our eyes. But it gets worse, doesn't it? We are blind because God has shut our eyes from seeing him as a judgment for our rejection against him. Isaiah 6, which Jesus quotes in Mark chapter 4, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and be healed. And God says, make this happen. As you preach my word, he says to the prophet Isaiah, I will actually close their ears, and shut their eyes, because of judgment. Because they have already stubbornly rejected me. Right? God confirms their sinful rebellion. Do you see that your spiritual condition is so bad. So bad is our spiritual blindness that nothing short of a miracle of God is needed. Do we see that? And this is exactly what Jesus does. He has come to open blind eyes. Jesus come to open blind eyes. And so, if any of you here, me included, see Jesus clearly today, If you truly understand that Jesus is God, God's Son, His Christ, our only Savior, if you really do trust Jesus with all of your heart and are seeking to live for Him, then you have received a miracle. Haven't you? You're only here today, I'm only here today with our eyes open because of the mighty work of Jesus' Spirit. Opening our blind eyes. That is the only reason we can say who Jesus is and believe it. And so what, right? Make sure you give thanks. When's the last time you really stopped and given thanks that Jesus opened your eyes and without him you would be blind to see? When's the last time you truly got on your knees in your heart to give thanks to Jesus? When's the last time you really testified, right, to, to this miracle of your salvation, to God's work, his sovereign work in bringing you to Christ? Now, next week, during the baptisms, people will be giving their testimonies. I okay, No pressure, uh, but I'm going to give you some advice, okay? Because you can tell from people's testimonies who they give credit to for their salvation, can't you? Some people, when they give their testimonies, they testify to themselves, right? They will say that I was lost, and then somehow along the way, I sought God in my lostness and my brokenness. And then, you know, I heard the gospel, and and I chose to accept and receive Jesus into my heart. And then after that, I want to follow Jesus all my life, and I look forward to going to heaven. It kind of sounds good, but it kind of sounds like it's them doing all the work, isn't it? whereas others testify to the miracle of salvation. They will say, I was lost, but then God sought me out. The gospel came to me and I placed my faith in Jesus. But now I see that even this faith to believe was a gift, is a gift from God. I now see and understand only through the power of Christ's spirit working in me and their testimony will finish with all praise and all thanks Be to God. all praise and all thanks be to God. There's a humbling thing to say, isn't it? That all praise and all thanks be to God. Nothing that I did, nothing in my hand I bring, but only to the cross I cling, but only because Jesus has opened my eyes. Now what about if you don't see? What if you're here this morning and you don't really believe that Jesus is as we see in God's word? Then can I encourage you to pray? To pray for God to open your eyes. To ask for the miracle of spiritual sight to happen to you. And you know what? You know what the Bible says? If you pray and if you seek and if you ask and if you knock? You know those famous verses? What Jesus promises? For those who seek will find. For those who ask, you will receive. For those who knock, the door will be opened to you. So if you do seek, if you do ask, if you do knock, Jesus will open your eyes. So that's the first big lesson. Spiritual blindness can only be cured by a miracle. Now, what's the second lesson? Well, the second lesson is this, right? There is a kind of partial sight, right? Partial sight. We see this is uh, man like trees walking. This is partial sight which is as good as being blind. It's as good as being blind. To see this play out in full, let's read on right, in the story. Now, after Jesus asked the disciples what people say Jesus is, uh, they replied, John the Baptist, Elijah, and so on, as we saw before. Jesus now asked the disciples, point blank, right, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And did you realize that for the first time on the lips of a human being, Peter says, you are the Christ. Did you realize that? Because before in the story, who are the ones that recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ? The evil spirits. right? They recognize who Jesus is. The voice from heaven declared it. But no human being had said, Jesus, you are the Christ before. Right? This is the climax of the first part of Mark's Gospel. Finally, someone gets the fact that Jesus is the Christ, right? the Son of God. Even though... Mark has been showing us uh, time and time again that Jesus has been preaching and showing the kingdom. No one has come and got it so far. Now maybe it's because the Christ that they were expecting isn't the Christ that they were seeing in Jesus. Right? Let me give you an example of a Jewish writing uh, which tells us what they were expecting from the Christ. Okay? Just to give you an idea of what they were expecting. Right, Behold, O Lord, and raise up unto them their king, the son of David. Uh, and gird him with strength that he may shatter unrighteous rulers and that he may purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her down to destruction. With a rod of iron he shall shatter all their substance, he shall destroy the godless nations with the word of his mouth and he shall have the Gentile nations to serve him under his yoke. Okay, So this is a very typical example of a Jewish writing of the kind of Christ that they were expecting. A military, nationalistic, all-conquering king who would smash the Gentile nations, the ruling power, whether it's the Greeks, the Romans, doesn't matter who, and establish the Jews right, as the ruling power with their Christ as the almighty king and general, okay? So they don't see Jesus as he does what he does. But, Jesus, uh, but Peter now sees that and we know it's a miracle, don't we, that he sees it because barely moments ago, He couldn't understand anything, right? In the boat, could he understand anything? Nothing. A few moments later, he sees Jesus, and he finally gets it. Spiritual blindness is gone. He's the Christ. But the question is, does Peter really see? Does Peter really see? Does he really understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ? As we read on, we find out our answer, right? Verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Right? No parables, no innuendo, no metaphors, plain as day. I am going to suffer. I am going to be rejected. I am going to die. And I'm going to rise again. And Peter is shocked. Right? Right? He's so overcome by what he hears that he tells Jesus off. Can you imagine that? Right? He just said, "You're the Christ." Right? He's seen all his miracles and all his power, and then he suddenly he he rebukes Jesus. Ta-tan! Right? Sorry, if you're a Chinese movie friend, uh, that's when in the Chinese movies, right? The the, the king, you know, some subject, you know, goes against the emperor, and then you know are gonna head's gonna get chopped. Right? How dare you say such? Okay. Anyway, sorry going to my Chinese movie mode. Um, It's crazy that Peter would rebuke Jesus and reject what Jesus has told him. Now, obviously, he didn't get the last bit, right? The rise again bit. Peter is just focused on the what? You're the Christ and you're going to suffer? You're going to be rejected? And you're going to die? He doesn't get it. His view of Jesus Christ is like seeing man as trees walking, right? He doesn't really see Jesus properly, does he? And this partial sight is failed sight because Jesus gives one of the strongest rebukes you'll ever hear in the Bible or anywhere. Get behind me, Satan. To misunderstand the Christ is to be a get behind me, Satan kind of bad. Can you see that? Partial sight is as good as failed sight. It doesn't get any more serious than to be accused of being Satan. Not seeing Jesus properly is deadly serious. Not seeing Jesus properly is deadly serious. It isn't okay just to say, I believe, you believe, everything's okay. What is it exactly we believe? And does it matter? Yes, it matters what we believe about Jesus. You cannot fashion the Christ in your own making, in your own images, for your own purposes. You can't just say, I sincerely believe this, because you could be sincerely wrong. Get behind me, Satan, kind of wrong. Sincerity is no marker of truth. You cannot simply say, Jesus was a good man, a great teacher, a prophet, or even an inspiration. You can't say that I see Jesus as being wholly entirely victorious, and that is the Jesus I want to see, right? And the kind of Jesus I follow is only mighty and powerful. And then you you kind of reject or you you minimize or you're even a bit ashamed of the fact that you have to talk about to your friends and family a God you believe in who suffered and who was rejected and, and who dies. And the evidence that we reject those bits or we are ashamed of those bits about Jesus is when we reject and are a bit ashamed of the kind of life that Christians ought to live. And there's the second part that we see, right? That there is a clarity in who Jesus is, as the one who suffers, is rejected and dies. But then there's a clarity, a corresponding clarity, in the Christian, the Christ way of life. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Now, the logic here is really simple, isn't it? Looking at verse 34, to be a Christian is to follow in the footsteps of the Christ. Right? That's basically the logic, isn't it? To be a Christian is to follow in the footsteps of the Christ. Simply put, it means to give up our lives. Or maybe better put, is to give up seeing that our lives belong to us, that it is ours to live. It is not ours to live. It belongs to our Creator. Our Creator to our Savior. Jesus continues, right? If you want to save your life now, if you want to keep living for yourself, you will end up losing your life for eternity. A little diagram here that helps us understand. You want to save your life now? In the future, you will lose your life. But if you give up your life now, you lose your life now, you will save it for eternity. You will live forever with Jesus. You see, the normal Christian life is a life of self-denial, of saying no to what our sinful self and our sinful world desires. Say no to things like our sexuality, our sinful sexuality and sinful sexual expressions, our sinful views on the purpose of studies and, and work. Our sinful relationships and, 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 and the, the, the sins that, that killed our relationships with our family and friends. Our sinful use of money and enjoyment of this world. Now, I'm not saying that those things are sinful. I'm saying our, our sinful, idolatrous way of living for all of those things. You see, all of these things and more, in fact, everything will be significantly different to how we used to do things before we came to see Jesus. Before Jesus, spiritually blind, we live for ourselves and the world. We saved our lives. But Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, then you lose your life. You deny those things. You live a different way. Now, it's not hard to see how this cross-shaped life will then involve suffering and rejection and even death. For you're at odds with the world, aren't you? If you have a different sexual ethic, Anyone been reading the news recently? In the last few years even? To have a different sexual ethic to our wider community is to, be, to suffer a kind of social death, isn't it? You either have to stay silent or if you speak up, you run the risk, not a risk, not risk, you run the reality that you'll be ostracized, you'll be rejected. You'll face social death. If we refuse to cheat and lie and steal in our studies or in our work, or in our sports, you're going to have classmates and colleagues and and, and teammates say, come on, man. We've got to get a seven on this assignment. We've got to get that, 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 that project, that contract. We've got to win that game. Can't you just ease up a bit? We're going to face social death as we put Jesus first, as we live for him. For many of us, though, the greatest suffering comes from within isn't it? As we struggle to say no to ourselves and we feel the pain of having to put to death to cut out bits of ourselves which are sinful, that will suffer, that will hurt. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise that this is the way of Christ. Now, if you have a Christ that is just about victory in His kingship, then you expect a life of victory and success. But is that the life of of the Christ that we see in Mark chapter 8. Is this seeing Jesus with clarity and therefore seeing the Christ's way with clarity? Now I want to say, do you think, I want to ask, sorry, do you think this is worth it? Do you think it's worth losing your life now to save it? I love how Jesus says it here in this passage, right? What, What good is it to gain the whole world, everything the world has to offer, but to lose our souls? Can you see the comparison he's saying here? The value of our souls and the value of all that the world has to offer, which is more important? Your soul. It is worth saying no, dying to ourselves now, because our soul will live on. It will live the best life in the future if we are to lose our lives in the present. And the absolute key to be willing to do that is if you see Jesus clearly. If Jesus really is who he says he is, then it's worth doing this. He is the Christ who suffers, who is rejected, and who dies before he is raised again to glory. That is our lives if we put ourselves in Jesus' hands. So, as we finish today, I want to ask you who do you say Jesus is? It is the most important question in life because it determines how you live. Who do you say Jesus is? What kind of Christ? Do you believe in? And therefore, what kind of Christ life do you expect to live? Do you have eyes to see? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we beg of you uh, to do the miraculous, powerful work of opening our eyes to seeing the truth of your word, to seeing the truth of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. On our own, infected by our own spiritual blindness, we have no hope of seeing these realities. But we have amazing hope because the power lies in you. The power lies in your son to open our eyes. And we pray so much that you'll keep opening our eyes. For those here who have never seen Jesus this way before, we pray that for the first time, you will bring a glorious opening to their eyes so that they can see the truth of Christ clearly today. Help them to come to trust in Jesus and to live for him. For those of us who do have open eyes, we thank you so much. We want to pray for a a, a greater uh, gratitude in our hearts, that we might be led to a greater praise of the amazing, miraculous work you've done in our lives, and we ask that you continue to keep our eyes open, to keep our understanding with great clarity who Jesus is, and therefore the life that we ought to live as those who follow him. In that life, things are difficult as we go against what the world tells us life should be about. As our own sinful nature tries to convince us to live for ourselves, we pray that we may see why it is worth it to lose our lives now in order that we may save it, in order that we may enjoy the eternity that you have prepared for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.